Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America Podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody Award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Great America Show. President Biden is having a few problems, a few issues. Yes, he did get enough votes to pass the infrastructure bill, thanks to 13 rhino turncoats. They can also take a bow for adding another trillion dollars to our $30 trillion national debt. Republicans in name only and certainly not conservative, those 13. Amongst Biden's problems, the federal appellate court, the Fifth Circuit in particular, blocking his business vaccine mandate for at least a period of time. The FBI seems enthusiastic now to investigate parents who dare to assert their interest in educating their children at school board meetings. And more than a few Americans are a little concerned about the vast number of illegal immigrants Mr. Biden has permitted into the country, some two million over the past year, and a border that remains wide open. The national mood is, let's say, muted. So how did a Republican get elected governor in Virginia? And how about deep blue New Jersey? Very, very, very close. We take all of this up with the pollster who called it right in Virginia and who, in my book, calls it right more often than most. We're joined by the Trafalgar Group's Robert Cahaley, pollster extraordinaire and a great American. And now, Robert Cahaley. And Robert, a delight to have you here. No one more accurate than you. We're just uh, delighted to talk about so many issues. But let's start with how in the world do you keep being so accurate in your polling while others are so, well, such laggards? Well, I think part of the problem is they really haven't changed the way they do things. You know, they're still using this model of these long surveys with only live callers. And I mean, the way you would poll people in the 60s or the 50s, and people just don't live that way anymore. People don't have a life that lets them stop what they're doing, uh, you know, go into the room of the house where the phone is and sit down there in the parlor and, you know, Answer 20, 30 questions. That's just not reality of the way people live today. You know, if you look back 40 years ago, the way we banked was different. You went into a bank. The way, the way you did, you know, the way you did almost everything was different. You went to the store if you had to buy something. You never thought about ordering it online. So our whole life has changed, and yet this archaic system has not changed. It's why I called them Pony Express or Dinosaur Pollsters. They don't, they don't see the media coming, but it's here. Right. And they're going to get it wrong, and they're going to get it wrong again and again. Well, you got it right, and I want to talk about Virginia. Uh, you, you called it for Yunkin uh, early and correctly. And uh, many people, and I'll include myself, I, I did not, I, I was very interested in that race, as you might expect. 
but I wasn't uh, so sure. And to see it unfold uh, exactly the way you had expected uh, was a was a treat. Uh, your thoughts on that race? Well, the first thing people don't understand about that race is Terry McAuliffe also got more votes than the Democrat did four years before. But there was a 1.2 million difference between right. the number of people who voted in the 2020 presidential and the 2017 governor's race. So what? So this was both parties were about going out there and grabbing people who don't usually vote in state elections and mobilizing them. And the intensity was on the side of the Republicans. Uh, and so all he had to do is then he had to take even though, but see, you know, he's still behind by ten points. So beyond that, he's got to go fight them in their backyard. Well, there, you know, McAuliffe had nothing to motivate people to vote for him in, in southern western Virginia. But on the other hand, just, you know, it just so happened that this critical race theory and all this masking and all these crazy school board stuff happened to be going on. And this created the wedge that had it, he had to have, that Yunkin had to have in northern Virginia. Yunkin didn't have to win northern Virginia. He just had to not get creamed there. And right. he did better than not get creamed. Right. It, it, it was an impressive showing, uh, an astounding uh, result. Uh, I think most of the, the country was expecting fully just another Democrat, <laughs> another Democratic win, or if nothing else, uh, uh, perhaps a late night uh, adjustment in the vote. Uh, it was uh, it was an impressive win for Yunkin, and I, he looks and uh, sounds the part of a man who is a generational candidate, who could uh, could really uh, become the symbol for a turning point in this country. Am I putting too much on him? No, as a matter of fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, when I actually said that when Yunkin wins this, he's going to be on he's going to be on the short list for vice everybody's vice president. I mean, I, I saw this guy, you know. The more I got to kind of witness the way he is and the way he campaigns, I mean, he campaigns with an energy and authenticity. Uh, I mean, he, he, he doesn't he doesn't hide or is ashamed to express how he feels about his faith. Uh, I mean, it's like, how can a guy like this win in Virginia? And, and I think it's just this country's had too much of the other side. Yeah. I mean, they thought they were electing a moderate and state and stability in Biden, and they got nothing of the kind. No, and there's and, a lot of buyers remorse here. Well, there are a lot of excited buyers in Virginia right now. It's clear uh, the man is a Christian, a family man. Uh, he uh, is just a uh, he ran uh, the Carlisle Group for what? Uh, t well, he worked there for 25 years. He ran the company. Uh, he's one of those businessmen who have uh, decided to stand up and uh, be in the system despite knowing he's going to be assaulted from every every corner, uh, not just by the radical left or the uh, or the national left wing media, uh, but just about uh, every quarter, whether it's oppo research by the party or whether it is just the the venality of the media and partisan uh, organizations. Uh, he stood up to it and, and, and grinned at it all the way. I, I was very, very impressed. Well, and, and the thing is, it actually is going to start to get easier. One of the things that President Trump accomplished is by taking people on and not 
not being afraid. Every time says, well, somebody says, oh, if you think this, you have to be racist. If you think this, you're an anti-Semite. I mean, it's those words that are horrible and powerful words start having no meaning when they are thrown at everybody for everything. And so every time a candidate stands up and refuses to take it and says, of course, I'm not a racist. I'm a Christian. I believe all men are created in the image of God. And how in the world could I be? When The more people do that, the more that this doesn't work anymore. But the more people cower every time somebody makes an accusation like that and backs down, then the more it works. So these attacks are being weakened every time people stand up. And having Winston Sears right there behind him, like, yeah, this is the white supremacist ticket? Come on. This is ridiculous. It's it's interesting to see the Democratic Party right now seeming to be uh, quivering uh, a bit uh, after the victory, particularly in Virginia, but also that close race in the state of New Jersey, which is a deep, deep blue state. Uh, two issues uh, that they're, they're talking a lot about suddenly, education and public safety. Uh, the In Minneapolis, the, the ballot measure to change the police department into a department of public safety and and mental health workers uh, failed. There there were some significant uh, breaks in uh, what has become of of late uh, strong trends. Uh, How important uh, was what we witnessed in that election uh, in shaping what could be a, a better future, brighter future for the Republican Party? It's all part of a greater picture. And this is why I get particularly angry about all the phony polling you see out there that has got, that has literally been trying to convince through through corporations and through I mean you look at the TV commercials that this entire country was afraid to leave their house over COVID. This entire country uh, thinks the country's a horrible place and we have to apologize for everything. And this entire country. You know, it believes that uh, the police have been abused and everybody like this is people are not ashamed of this country. People that none of this is real. And, and so this is a pushback when you start trying to tell a people like the American people that that, that you, you should kind of essentially be self-hating Americans right. and that you that then they, they push back because this is the country people are proud of, of what has been built. People are, are proud of even the obstacles we've overcome. We've o- overcome them more than any other country. There's not a country in the world where a minority has a better shot, better opportunity than the United States. And that's just a fact. Without question. And, and, uh, and, and they're the one, and, and a lot of those same people that, that, they're making all this stuff about those are the same people who are, who are the ones saying, no, don't get rid of the police because they're real. They understand reality. It, it, it's all these kind of young liberal white Ivy league kid types who have all this guilt for whatever reason. And so they're the ones out there creating all, all this, that this is not what real people who live in the communities, that this is not what they're experiencing. They yeah. know this is a bunch of junk. A bunch of junk, and yet it's being perpetuated uh, by the national left-wing media daily, emphatically, energetically. And as you as you reference, I, I, as my wife and I watch a sporting event on television, we're struck by the commercials 
and the uh, lectures and the messaging that is just they're inundating uh, those television audiences with propaganda for crying out loud. Uh, there was a time in this country where commercials were the voice of business. They represented the values of the nation, uh, the values of business uh, and uh, society. Uh, it, it's just it's become quite something. It, it is really stunning to watch what business is doing with uh, businesses are doing with shareholder money. But keep in mind, a lot of it is because the businesses have been sold a bill of goods by pollsters with agenda who tells them this is what the public wants. The business needs a wake-up call, and elections like this are a wake-up call that says, no, I don't care what your woke pollster told you. This is not where this country is. You know, we kept getting this nonsense about, oh, we need to say public safety and not say law and order. Guess what? People kind of like law and order. And, 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 and but, but, but that's what the pollsters with the agendas told us. Exactly. And, and law and order. And by the way, parents still think they should be in charge of the local school system, in charge of what is being taught their children. And that, yes, they are not just simply, uh, you know, bystanders as the state takes control of their children's lives and education. That was a, a powerful state, particularly in Virginia. There's no question about it. And, you know, one of the mo- I've been talking to a lot of legislators and around the country, and there's this movement to get rid of these school board elections that are always on these off years and nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. There's a movement. Put those things on the ballot at the same time. Make those things be partisan. Make, make people have to win a primary. Know where they are, because when these elections are standalones, then the teachers union can organize and win them. If you put yep. them on the same time they're electing your senators and your reps, you're going to get more accountable school board members. Robert, that's a great point and a great idea uh, that I assure you uh, this broadcast will be uh, driving uh, as part of the solutions to what we're dealing with in this country. Uh, we're not going to just talk about it on the on this podcast. We're going to actually do things here. Uh, for the uh, for the American people, American citizens, and I think what you've just outlined is one of uh, a critically important step. Uh, another critically important step, and that is to to actually begin to change the narrative on mandates of all kinds in this country. There is a, in the course of 11 months, the Biden administration has brought in an estimated 2 million illegal immigrants. The border that President Trump worked so hard to secure is now wide open. Uh, This president, Biden, is not persuading and communicating with the American people. He he hunkers down in a bunker and issues a mandate as if... uh, this were uh, some sort of uh, ridiculous uh, authoritarian regime rather than the greatest constitutional republic in history. Uh, what are we going to have to do to, to awaken uh, the American people and perhaps awaken the Republican Party to what must be done? Well, uh, you know, and I, 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 as I'm a pollster, so I'm going to keep coming back to this. Uh, we need to we need to call it out when people are putting out this phony information. 
mean, every now and then, we, we know what Biden's approval rating is. So when you see these phony polls that show it like at 48, 50, we know that's not real. Yep. But the thing is, people react until there's an election. They react to what the polling is. Yeah. And Manson and Cinema live in the real world. Okay, they get it. They deal with real constituents, and, and they kind of won. Both of them are famous for kind of being across the aisle. Both of them were in the House, and in the House they were, weren't hardcore liberals, even though they were Democrats. So, but they don't. They are actually in touch with their constituents, and that's why they they balked on this thing. But so many of these guys, you know, get elected, go to Washington, stay in that echo chamber. And they don't have any idea what people really think. They don't go to town hall meetings. They don't really talk to people. Their staff filters all their emails and, and, and calls. So they don't know. So the key is elections like these are wake-up calls. And what they have to start understanding is when people give you polling with an agenda, they're not giving you the advice you need to get reelected. And in the end, representatives and senators want to get reelected. And when they see how unpopular mandates are, I think you'll see a broad coalition that goes beyond just Republicans to stand up to this. Because as much if you don't like mandates and you're a Democrat, think about what happens next time a Republican's in the White House. I mean, this this has to have a, a limit put in there. And what has been so important, and I think this was a key for Youngkin and it'll be a key to a lot of elections, the importance of governors and state government has been showcased in the COVID era. People didn't really understand the difference between state and the federal government, and boy, oh boy, have they gotten a crash course in it. And that's good. People understanding federalism is good. Federalism is good. It's the, it is uh, the foundation of this country. And, 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 I, and I say to this audience every day, nowhere do you have more influence over our, our political future than in your own home, neighborhood, and community. There you have a greater voice. You have a greater opportunity to control, the, whether it's the quality of the air you breathe or the, uh, the water you drink, uh, the education system, your police department. And I really, I really believe it. There has to be participatory democracy in this country or the most active force ideologically will prevail whether good for america or bad for america exactly self-governance requires I mean, if you're going to self-govern that means you got to participate and we've also got to have confidence in the information that we're seeing and reading and hearing about uh and my confidence in that regard is <laughs> perhaps at an all-time low uh you talked about phony polls and i think it's a wonderful point robert but the question then becomes, are these polls phony? Are they archaic in their methodology uh, because of willful ignorance? Or is it because they're driving agendas, whether it's to corporate America, whether it is corporate America, political parties and ideological groups uh, across our society? I think, it, I think it's a mix of both. Um, some of the ones that are the academic ones that you see all the time sponsored by the colleges, I think there was a, an apology from the, of the guy that runs Mama today. Their models are old. Yep. I mean, it's very, we, we've said this for now since 2016. It's very simple. If you find somebody who can answer 28, 35 questions on a Tuesday night, they're not an average voter. 
They are yeah. not an average voter. So you end up reflecting the opinion of those who are on the extreme of the left or the right. And the right is afraid to give their opinion because they're tired of being canceled and everything else. So it disproportionately emphasizes the left opinion. Now, some of the more corporate types, some of, you know, some of the names you hear out there uh, that have gotten out of the game of doing elections because the accountability stinks when they do elections, but they put out polls all the time. And these are the, you know, the paid corporate polls. No, those are just straight up agenda. I'm not even sure they take surveys. Maybe they do. I don't know, but they know exactly what they want. You know, they have a, they have some kind of consulting in the morning and then decide what the polls going to say in the afternoon. (laughs) Well, uh, you're describing a, a seems like an ever growing number of those uh, kinds of uh, pollsters, and I want to say again, Robert, we thank you for your both integrity uh, and intelligence, and great success and accuracy. Uh, I, I want to turn t- to really the national mood right now, uh, because I, it, 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 it we seem to be a fickle. A fickle bunch, uh, Americans always have been. We've been suspicious of our government. We've been skeptical of our government. But right now, we are caught in a, a period of uh, polarization and alienation that, for the life of me, I can only compare to uh, this country when I was a young fellow in the 1960s. Uh, and where are we headed? And what is this? What is the real mood of this country? And it, and your thoughts about uh, the the way in which we go about improving that mood? Well, I believe. I mean, in general, I'm probably a little different. Um, I'm kind of a founding father type belief that I don't think two party system is healthy because one party has to win and one party has to lose. Right. And so. Nobody wants to solve anything. It's always about the next election. Could could there be an, a, a solution for the border, which involves um, it, having limits on birthright citizenship, having limits on people being able to come across to work but not be citizens? Of course there could be a compromise worked out. But one party would lose and one party would win. And so often that's the problem, and that polarization is – so inherent and and now you, you kind of moved into this when the democrats have control they want to make sure that the republicans the, the republicans will make sure the democrats achieve nothing when the other side has control and it's always about the next election and so i think that's a very bad thing and so one party is is going to emerge the democrat party has probably bitten off more than it can chew and gone so far to the left mm-hmm. that the center has moved back right. And I think that that's what we're going to see next is more, not, not necessarily just a Yunkin type, but, but this idea that a, a Yunkin, a mansion, a cinema, that the, these kind of, these people that are on the right all the way to the, just the left side of the middle, are where the country is. The Democrat Party has gotten so far off to the left that it no longer represents the country. I mean, you've got people like Pelosi and Schumer fighting to keep their party pro-Israel, for God's sake. I mean, we did a poll 
on that earlier, and we found that the majority of Democrats thought the Israelis were, were to blame for what was happening in Gaza. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's what Schumer believes. I don't think that's what Pelosi believes. I don't think that's what Biden believes. But they are, I mean, they're like on the back of a stagecoach without reins. And th- mm-hmm. these horses are running, and they're just trying not to get thrown off. I don't know what they believe, but I do know what they've done. And what they've done is turn their back on Israel in their policies and in their rhetoric uh, and in their leadership of the Democratic Party. Because they're afraid. Because they're afraid of their left wing. Well, uh, you know, if they're they're not going to be part, a chapter in Profiles and Courage, the least they could do is think about the the American national interests at the time, you know, at the same time they're, you know, putting a finger up to to see which way the wind is blowing, but that's asking for way too much. Uh, I'm going to give you the. These guys are going to take their party off the cliff. They don't yeah, take I, their party off the cliff, and they're on the way to doing it right now. If they don't, if they don't do a, a, a change of course like Clinton did after after '94, they're going to have real problems more than they can imagine. So let me ask you this: uh, We're going to give you the last word, uh, and I'd just like to ask you this: If you would consider it in that last word. Uh, what are, in your judgment, what are the odds that the this party is capable of turning its back on their left wing, the radical, uh, even Marxist wing of the Democratic Party, and reaching out to the middle class, to the center of our body politic? I would never underestimate people who live and die by the opinions of voters' ability to reinvent themselves to reflect what they believe to be the current opinion of the voters. Right. Yeah. And I've got to ask you one last question in this. Uh, Donald Trump, his name hasn't come up as we, as we've discussed this, how important is he going to be in 2022 and 2024? Well, remember at the beginning in Virginia, where I told you how important it was for the two parties to gin up their non-traditional state election voters. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen without the aggressive work that Trump and Trump supporters and activists on the ground did in Western and Southern Virginia. They blew right through the goals of where they had to be to get those things done. And so to to not understand that there is a, a mass of people that a lot of Republicans might, you know, there might be a lot of Republicans who just wish they'd go away, but if they go away, your governing coalition, your ability to win elections in the future is going to go away. So that is critical. Trump's ability to motivate people, the small business owner to the waitress to the truck driver, that ability is the key to winning 2022. And they, they will run those people off. They will, they will do it at the peril of being successful in 2022. And I, you know, you know, that nonsense Karl Rove published in the, the wall street journal, People just need let them start rewriting this stuff. Yeah. Because this has become a party of that represents average working people, and that is a good place to be. And it makes it's stupid for us to do the same thing, divide ourselves the way the Democrats are doing, because we'll fall apart too. And with that, we appreciate it so much. Robert Cahaley, the best pollster, in my opinion, in the country. 
uh, until somebody knocks him off his perch. And I think that's going to take a lot of work. Uh, you uh, you were terrific. We hope you'll come back soon. Uh, enjoy of the course. conversation. Robert, thanks yes, so much. Sir. Take care. You too. And now let's do something we do, perhaps not frequently, but certainly regularly on this podcast. Let's talk about religious liberty, the First Amendment, the freedom of religion, not the freedom from religion, as many on the left like to think about it. It's freedom of religion enshrined in the First Amendment, as I said. And as you know, the Marxist left in this country has tried to drive God from the public square, to drive God out of classrooms, and to deny public school students prayer and even silent worship. There is a cultural crisis in this country that's worsening because the leadership in America is, in my opinion, worsening. And certainly the President Biden agenda reflects deepening threats against our constitutional rights. I want to take up all of this with radio talk show host, best-selling author, columnist, and Christian conservative, Salem Radio's Eric Metaxas, who, by the way, has a new bestseller book just out, and we recommend it to you highly. The title is Atheism Dead. Congratulations on the book, Eric, and a delight to have you with us. I can't wait to have a conversation and to begin, if we may, uh, with what is a, a cultural crisis that has risen to levels. I don't think, you know, even at our most despairing, either you or I would have anticipated 20 years ago. Your thoughts on where we are and the forces at work in our society. Well, first of all, a joy to be with you, Lou, very longtime fan. And I want to say that when you say uh, we're at a moment culturally that we couldn't have dreamed of 20 years ago, I think that's the first point that needs to be made is that we have to recognize that what we're going through now is lunacy. And I think we have to encourage other Americans that if you think this is lunacy, it's because you're sane and there are more Americans who see the lunacy as lunacy than you would ever believe. They may not have voices in the media, but the fact is people see what is happening. And in some ways, I will say it is a great thing because it is waking us up. We Many of us have been asleep. We need to wake up. Keeping the republic is something that takes effort. And sometimes things have to get even this bad before some people realize, uh-oh, maybe I better do something. So I am uh, cautiously encouraged. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And a note to uh, our audience, the reason we call this the Great America Show is because we truly believe America is great. Uh, it is about a great America and not a sullen or oppressive uh, nation. Uh, but as uh, to use your word, Eric, a, a joyous and free nation and free people, all of that freedom is under threat, it seems, almost daily. But we are still a great nation, and we have nothing to apologize for uh, in being a great nation. I, I, I want to turn to the, the, the wokeness that you reference. I, I love the fact that the Marxist left in this country is talking about woke, which is sort of 
fitting that they would be upside down on the language and inverse to the semantics and the actual meaning of language. What they mean is they want us to continue to slumber and to give them free reign to attack our national institutions, to destroy our American values, uh, and to deny us and our children and our grandchildren the promise of the American destiny. Well, your thoughts. Your thoughts. Uh, you say, you know, I mean, the irony is that wokeness is the opiate of the masses. That's, you know, obviously an inversion of Marx's uh, infamous statement that uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. But in fact, wokeness is the opiate of the masses because it tells them things that maybe they want to believe, but that can never be true in any universe. Um, we don't need to talk about it now, but my new book is called Is Atheism Dead? And we have to remember uh, that at the heart of everything that is true and good, not least American-style freedom and self-government, this thing we call liberty, at the heart of it all is the idea that our rights come from God and that he made us to be free. Marxism, cultural Marxism, wokeness, is the antithesis of that. It does. It, it is explicitly, usually uh, not explicitly, but often explicitly anti-God. So whether it's BLM or Antifa or uh, Nancy Pelosi's party, you have people that have pushed God out. They have created a, they're in the process of creating a secular utopia, just as Lenin was trying to create it, and Stalin was, and Mao, and that they can't do it. It's like, I mean, again, there's great irony. It's it's like the Tower of of Babel, right? We're going to build a tower to reach heaven. Hey, guess what? You can build for the rest of your life. You'll never get there. It has to come to you. And so, anybody who thinks that they can get what they want and they don't need God. That is antithetical to the founders' idea. The founders all understood this. But what's what's comical in a way, if you, if you want to say how good is America, America is so good that its own idea of religious liberty, which is at the heart of everything, even says to the atheist, even though what you would do ultimately would undermine all of this. Nonetheless, we're such a free country that we give you religious liberty. The question is, will the atheists and the cultural Marxists give everyone else religious liberty? And the answer is an emphatic no. But we're waking up to what is really happening and to understanding how it's happening. And so, as I say, all of that is, is, a, is a good thing, but we do need to really understand it. Absolutely. And uh, and it's simply it is simply an assault. Now, uh, this wokeness is just an expression of the assault that the, the left in this country uh, it has undertaken against our institutions, our values, but against, indeed, the very idea of America itself. Right. I wish I wish I were comfortable with the thought or confident in the thought that, oh, these these. These folks who uh, want to deny conservatives uh, access to uh, the student bodies of universities and their campuses, uh, you know, that's just a misunderstanding. Uh, those who want to control the language 
uh, in the public arena uh, and by and thereby control thought. Uh, at every turning point, there is an effort to remove freedom, to destroy liberties, uh, not just simply minimize. They want to eliminate freedom right. of speech and thought. Right. The academia at one time in this country was uh, hallowed ground for individual liberty, for uh, free speech, free thought and expression. It has become something constricted and uh, suffocating, denying expression of uh, whether it be liberty, whether it be uh, freedom of speech, whether it be freedom of religion. It is all under assault That's by right. the left. The the thing that is, it's almost funny. I, uh, I gave a speech at the University of the South in Sewanee. I don't know if it was five or six years ago. They, they invited me there to give me an honorary doctorate. And it was very formal. And I was the convocation speaker. And I knew that they had gone pretty woke already then. And so I said, I'm going to take this opportunity to deliver uh, a speech, very, very uh, anodyne in tone. But I said, I want to talk about free speech and the, and the vital importance of having a conversation with people who are on the other side of various issues. And it could Good not have you. been more measured and civilized. I went out of my way to make this point as kindly and gently as I could, but to make the point, the firestorm that came out of it, some student wrote to the paper, he says, this was the most hateful thing he had ever heard in his life. You know, he was probably 19.1 years old, but right. he thought he would use that. And then uh, after that, it was uh, almost funnier. Uh, they, they are now threatening to revoke the honorary doctorate. So simply talking about free speech, what does it tell us? It tells us we're at war. If you can't agree on these super basics like freedom and speech and the Constitution, you're, you're at war. And uh, it's a war that right now we're at, at mid-pitch of the battle. Uh, it, it seems we are neither winning nor entirely losing, but we know what's at stake. And and now we have a government that is in league uh, with forces uh, in our society, uh, whether it be the doctrinaire uh, efforts of the left on college campuses, universities, uh, whether it be labor unions, whether it be the Democratic Party or the radical left itself. Uh, there is sometimes a difference between the Democratic Party and the radical left, not often as there used to be, but sometimes uh, it, it's it's starting to to we're starting to see people actually afraid in this country. Yes. Afraid to say something that might be considered offensive. I say good. Good on you for your your speech uh, at the University of the South. Well, again, that was five a wonderful thing to do or six years ago. But I thought to myself, listen, I. You know, you, you may know, I, I wrote a 600-page biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the great right. heroes of the 20th century, who stood up to the Nazis as a Christian, felt an obligation to God to speak out for the Jews, to speak against the Nazi doctrine. Most Christians who are actually just churchgoers calling themselves Christians, they, they, they look the other way. They didn't want to get in trouble. That's, of course, where we are 
in America today. Are enough people going to wake up and be willing to use the freedom that we still have to speak up, to defy nonsense, uh, to encourage those who see the madness? Uh, are we going to do that? Or are we going to say, not yet, I don't want to lose my job. I'm just going to go with the flow. Uh, if you tell me to get a a vaccine shot that I, I don't think is going to do me any good or might do me harm. I, I can't think about that. I want my job. I'm just going to do it. The government says do it. I'm feeling this pressure. That's precisely what the good Germans were feeling in Germany. They were not some evil tribe. My mother came from there. My my family is from there. These were good people who simply lacked courage in the moment when it was needed. We are in such a moment in the United States. If people do not stand up and live out their freedom and spend what you've got now in this war, tomorrow, what you thought you could spend will be taken away from you. And I don't just mean money. I mean your voice. Uh, So this is really, really serious. And we did not, of course, declare war. Once somebody says to you, free speech is out, what you say is hate speech, Uh, And we're going to come after you once that happens and people go along with it. And of course, many Republicans, craven as they are, have gone along with it. Corporate America, ultra craven. They have gone along with it. The few of us willing to speak can make the difference between whether we go down the path that Germany went down uh, or whether we remain free. I believe God's hand is on this country. We couldn't have lasted or come into existence if that weren't the case. But uh, he doesn't force us to do the right thing. Right now, we have to exercise our courage. Everybody uh, has to do that. It is absolutely vital. We do not want to repeat uh, the, the mistakes of the past. I, I, I do believe we are unique. Uh, there has never been a country like America. And I don't think it's our time to vanish. But sometimes things really need to get horrible for a lot of good people to finally wake up and and one of the things one of the most important things i wanted to talk to you today about of course uh, is the role of religion uh, and the reception of uh, the current american society to religion uh because and i do so with the full knowledge that there are some people listening in the audience who uh, may not believe in god or are agnostic uh, who do not want to talk about religion in a, a secular sense where we're talking politics and uh, and economics and uh, other issues that uh, certainly involve religion. Religion is involved in all our lives, whether we uh, acknowledge it or not. But to see, uh, and I want to speak, I want to get your opinion on this, because I'm starting to see signs, whether it be in our church or whether it be uh, our pastor, or just across the country, I'm seeing uh, evangelicals, Christians, certainly starting to stand up, yeah, and say, you know, this is wrong. And, and President Biden, let's pray for him. But what are we praying for? And there was a time where it would be the pastor would just simply say, let's pray for our leaders. Now we are praying for guidance. Uh, by Almighty God, and being very clear about the direction that we want to go, preserving freedom, preserving the right of uh, worship, and and 
preserving this great nation. I see an awakening, uh, and I, I I find it exhilarating uh, to to hear these words now from the pulpit. Well, again, that's a these are rare churches that are waking up, but they don't all need to wake up. Uh, the handful that are that are waking up and that are defying preposterous government mandates. There are a number of churches. I've actually spoken at them in California, Jack Hibbs's church in Chino Hills and Rob McCoy's church in Thousand Oaks and a number of them around the country where they have said, we refuse to bow the knee to the state. We are free. We have freedom of religion in America. These are heroes, these folks. And I'll tell you something they're so inspiring that atheists are going to these churches. Atheists uh, are saying, whatever they have, I'm attracted to it. That freedom, that courage, uh, these churches are growing. And the churches that continue to speak in a mealy-mouthed way and uh, you know take as their text the editorial page of the New York Times, those, those churches have been shrinking for about 100 years, but right. they're sh- shrinking the more dramatically. There's no way around it. America has always been about, we respect differences. We, you can never force someone to have faith or to not have faith. That's the, the whole point of religious liberty. The founders said, we need faith in this country to make people virtuous and to make them on their own do the right thing so we can have limited government, we can govern ourselves. But we understand that it has to be free. No one can force anyone to go to a church or go to a mosque or whatever. Once you start forcing people, either it's a theocracy or, or it's what they were fleeing from in Europe, or uh, it's an atheist uh, tyranny. And we see that unless you have freedom of religion, religion can't really flourish. And the reason freedom has flourished in America is because religion has flourished. Tocqueville saw this 50 years after the revolution and was astonished because uh, in, in France, it was just the opposite. The church was married to the state. It was this, this uh, monolith of power that they wanted to get rid of. But in America, the, the faith uh, of the people made them freer. The churches were, were free to speak whatever they liked. And so it's, it's a dramatic experiment in liberty, this United States uh, that, that we have been privileged to live in. And I simply think that it's, it's part of the the theme of the book of my book is atheism dead is that in the last 60 or so years, we've taken our eye off the ball. We've believed that uh, secularization was the answer. In other words, rather than say we can't force religion on people and we have to have separation of church and state, we took that fatal step and said, we're going to secularize everything. We're going to take God out of everything. Well, that's no different than imposing God, imposing secularism or an atheist view is no different than imposing uh, a certain kind of Christian view or a Muslim view. We've really blown that, and it has ultimately led to where we are today. One of the, I think, uh, great uh, achievements of the Trump administration was restoring religion to the public square. And I think he doesn't get sufficient credit. In some cases, uh, that contribution is ignored altogether. But no president in recent history has done more to restore the church and religion to the public square, the public arena, uh, and political debate in the country. Uh, well, and it's I, one and of the reasons so many a, love him. Yeah, it's, it's such a critically important 
uh, turning point in our history, and I believe sets the, the groundwork, if you will, for even uh, more achievements uh, as we as we confront the tests, the challenges, and threats to to religion in this country. Your book, Atheism is Dead. I actually, it's a que- it's a question. I'm I'm I'm, tra- <laughs> I'm trying to frame it. Time Magazine said, "Is God dead?" So I put it as atheism dead. Right. I, I, I think that that uh, they hated using that uh, that question mark. Uh, they were asserting something I thought rather emphatic, rather than of interrogatory. Course. Yeah. Uh, I, and I happen to believe uh, atheism is uh, is certainly alive and well, but is it dying? Is it dead? Uh, you know, no better person to ask, answer that question than Eric Metaxas is in my, uh, in my view. Uh, so is atheism, is it dead? Okay. Um, the reason I asked that question, the book is really not so much about atheism. Um, the last third of the book deals more directly with atheism, but uh, here's what happened. I, over the years, I, I became very serious about my faith uh, around my 25th birthday. And since then, you know, I went to Yale and I grew up in a very secular environment. Uh, you know, even though we went to church on Sundays, n- nobody was reading the Bible and praying at meals or anything. So I had this experience at age 25 and I started reading books and I was astonished to see that, you know, there's there's no reason to say that uh, science is the enemy of faith. And I was reading these books over the years and reading what, you know, we call apologetics, realizing that there's nothing more reasonable than the Judeo-Christian faith. It has led to every kind of great thing. Well, as we know, in 1966, the cognoscenti, the powers that be, decided to put this idea of the death of God in America's living rooms. It had been uh, in, in in the universities. It had been in the in certain areas, but now it comes into America's living room, and they ask, is God dead? Of course, it comes from Nietzsche, who declared God is dead, and, and then promptly went insane, right? Well, I think over the decades, the evidence, this is very uh, surprising to people, and I'm not surprised that people almost find it hard to believe, but the facts are in the book, and it is surprising, but that since that Time Magazine article came out, it's 1966. Roughly since then, the evidence from science, from various disciplines in science, has been absolutely clearly pointing to the existence of a creator to the point where it's an open and shut case. You can hate the idea, but science has been steadily pointing more and more clearly to the idea that there is zero chance that everything um, emerged randomly, that the earth just happened to be perfectly tuned for life, and that the first cells emerged four billion years ago. A cell is an unbelievably complex thing. The idea that it emerged out of the random sloshing of the primordial soup, we now know enough from science to know those things are preposterous. So the question is, what do you do with it? Well, I, I bumped into a scientist uh, in Houston, where I'm going tomorrow, actually, and he uh, gave me yet another piece of information on this. And I said, you know what? I've got to write a book because 
people can't believe that we haven't been hearing this information. It's been piling up like snow overnight. You're sleeping and you wake up and there's that you can't even open the front door. It's drifting. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And you've been sleeping. And I feel like we've been sleeping in this secular dream, forgetting that, um, first of all, science was never the enemy of faith. It was Christian faith in the 16th and 17th centuries that led to the rise of modern science, which is a great irony. And suddenly there's all this information from science. There's been outrageous uh, evidence from the world of archaeology that points to the historical accuracy of the Bible. And it piled up so much. I said, I've got to write a book. And I thought, you know what? The question now is, is atheism dead? Because I will say, I will answer and say that atheists may insist that, no, we're not dead. We're here. Well, I'm here to tell you flat earthers are also here, but it doesn't mean that the theory of flat earth is not dead. And if you want to be an agnostic, if you want to say, listen, I hate Christians, I hate religion, I don't like it. That's fine. That's it's a free country. But to make this statement, there is no God and to be a committed atheist based on what's in this book and, of course, much else. But uh, I say it is intellectually un. Tenable. The science has, over the last, let's say, five decades, piled up quietly. People haven't looked at it. They bought the thesis that God is dead, and they just moved on. They said, you know, even when evidence comes up, um, and I make the case later in the book that the 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 those atheists who looked most rigorously, uh, unflinchingly at the idea of atheism, both ended up coming to faith in God, which to me is a gigantic headline, and no one has ever heard about it. And when I discovered it, I fell out of my chair. I said, this is uh, this also has to go in the book because it tells you everything. You mentioned archaeology, one of the most exciting uh, uh, to me because I'm interested in space and, uh, and the technology of uh, imagery from space, particularly when uh, the cameras are trained uh, on, on the Middle East uh, in particular. Yeah. For there to be the, and and we'll call this the possibility of Sodom having been discovered, the the, the, oh. the, the and the fitting in the place where the the Bible uh, suggests it would be, uh, also the Ark. Now there is a very real possibility that they have discovered the actual Ark. I know that there have been claims before, but this has the uh, this has the rigor of science and technology and imagery to back it up. Uh, it is a very promising find. And there, there suddenly, there are a number, I, I would say at least a half dozen uh, of these examples uh, to support your view on uh, the evidence that is becoming uh, significant and perhaps uh, compelling uh, to the point of conclusion that, my gosh, the book is actually throughout far more than allegory and metaphor. Uh, there is there is demonstrable evidence of the events and places uh, that occurred uh, in, in the Bible. I mean, that's I, that's exciting. I I dare anyone to look into it. They they will be stunned. The the just in my book, the middle section is on archaeology, and of course, I don't list everything, but but. First of all, the, the discovery of biblical Sodom, there is zero question, 
zero. When you look into it, there was an article in Nature, 21 scientists analyzed the data from this site. It is simply open and shut. So to say that we found something from 1700 BC that's talked about in the Bible, and 21 scientists were so astonished that in a peer-reviewed, you know, probably one of the most prestigious, certainly one of the most prestigious academic journals on the planet, they refer to Sodom and the destruction of Sodom because it's so uncanny that they have to mention it. When, when I discovered this, and then, I, then, you know, first you're shocked because, I mean, I really looked into it with skepticism. And then I said to myself, and not only is this true, no one knows this. This is, there's no headlines. There's no, I said, this is gigantic news. And the same thing is true of uh, Christopher Hitchens was asked once, what's the strongest argument for God? And in a very rare moment of candor, honestly, he said, uh, oh, the fine-tuned universe. And the argument for the fine-tuned universe that the more science discovers about the nature of the earth, the nature of the universe, the more science discovers that if anything were ever so slightly different, just a tiny, tiny bit different, no life would exist. And, And this is discovered daily more and more. In other words, the more science discovers, the more it points to the idea that there's zero chance this was not created uh, by some infinitely intelligent designer. This narrative has not been out there. And that's why I wrote the book. I said, we've got to get people to look at the facts. You don't have to agree with everything, but boy, you're going to be surprised. You'll probably be, be shocked, frankly. Eric, uh, we thank you for being with us. We thank you for writing the book. We recommend your book uh, to the audience uh, wholeheartedly. The book is, is Atheism Dead? Atheism is Dead? Uh, question mark. Uh, it's terrific. And uh, we, we again recommend it to you. We thank you so much for being with us, Eric. And here's our custom. You, uh, you get the last word here. Well, first of all, I do want to say again, uh, you are a treasure and uh, I have admired your work uh, for years and I'm just so grateful for you and I'm thrilled you have found this new medium and honored uh, that I get to be on it. And I just want to say that the the title of the book is Atheism Dead really postulates that we have been living with a narrative and that narrative leads to socialism and Marxism, the idea that we can get rid of God. And we all have to discover that it cannot work. It, it simply cannot work. It won't work. We can try and try and try and try. It doesn't work. What works is uh, a free market with virtue. What works is a republic of self-governing individuals who have virtue. That is what the founders, by the grace of God, were able to give us And so many people died for that. And if we have to get to this level of wokeness and madness, uh, you know, to the the, the build back Brandon, uh, you know, theme that we're just going to destroy everything and we're going to start afresh. I think, ironically, the opposite is happening. People are waking up to the things that you know, we took them for granted. Well, now we realize we better not. So as I say, now I said in the beginning, I am uh, 
cautiously but very seriously hopeful for this uh, nation, not least because of folks like you. So thank you very much, Lou Dobbs. Very kind, Eric. Thank you so much. Eric Metaxas, we thank you and all of you listening. Uh, I would just like to say we'll see you next time, and God bless you all. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America Podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds.